Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Have you ever been hurt by the church? I was rhetorical, so you don't have to say anything. I saw some raised hands. That's all right. I think most of us have experienced church hurt, right? Maybe in the past, you have given your trust away to someone and, returned, or, and, that, re, and that trust was returned to you or betrayed by someone who claimed to follow Jesus. But that hurts, right? Some of you here today, you... You're carrying a wound, you're carrying a hurt, and um, it's affected your relationship and the way you see church. Or maybe some of you here today, um, you, you've been in church long enough. How many have been in church over 40 years? Wow, many of you. How many of you under 10 years? Okay, wow, there's more over 40 than under 10. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. All right. So many of us have experienced uh, church life, but, but maybe you've been in church long enough to witness the moral scandal and calamity and the profound ways the church has not lived up to its sacred calling. We say this often, but church life is messy. It's like a plate of spaghetti, right? My, my son, Riley, whenever he eats a plate of spaghetti, it's like the apocalypse. <laughs> like it's everywhere. He's not a clean eater, and we're working on him, but spaghetti's everywhere. He destroys the counter, food, spaghetti's on the floor. It's all over his body. We find throughout the day spaghetti hands all over the wall. That, in a way, is a depiction sometimes of our life within the walls of the church. And maybe some of you here today, you're, you're, you're disappointed, maybe somewhat disillusioned, uh, you've asked, okay, where is the prophetic power of the church that diffuses hatred and lovelessness? You wonder. A recent study offers a sobering reality of the church. 84% of non-church people know a Christian. It's pretty powerful. But out of that 84%, non-Christians can only identify 12% as being deeply committed followers of Jesus. And we often hear this in our culture, right? It's, it's cringe. Everyone say cringe. Right? The theology behind it. I'm like, ah, I don't know if, I, I, if non-Christians totally understand what they're saying. But they often say, and I understand it, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Maybe some of you here, and I can see in your faces, you were dragged here today. And, you, and you, maybe occasionally you come to church and... and uh, you, you try desperately to draw the connection between all the Jesus stuff and how that matters to you. Right? How does Jesus and his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, how is that relevant to the things that matter most to me? And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Right? And many of you here today, you might feel like, ah, Christians are just uninteresting, messages are mediocre, uh, the Christian church uh, is not relevant to the issues, the major issues of today. And we could go on and on and on. I just want to state the sociological elephant in the room here today is that there is a rapid decline of religious affiliation in the Western world, and it's real. The church is in decline 
in the West, not just numerically, but also in spiritual vitality. Yet, if you were to read the Bible, just even a little bit, maybe some of you are not familiar with the Bible, but you take the New Testament and you just read it just even a little bit, you'll begin to see that the church is a staging ground for the rule of God breaking out in the world. You find this in, in Ephesians. Paul writes a letter to the church, and he says that the church is Christ's body, and God fills the world through his people. So, what does that mean, right? St. Augustine said this, you cannot have God as your father if the church is not your mother. In other words, he's stressing the importance and the role and the status of the church in relationship to the world. Here's the thing, America in 500 years might not exist, but I guarantee you, if the Lord does not return, the church will be in existence. As one author said, my conviction is that the church is the community that God has set at the center of the world to keep the world centered. And so the role of the church is to be a revolutionary body, not a peripheral, sitting on the sideline, complaining, irrelevant, irreverent kind of people. The church is God's answer. Could you say God's answer? is God's answer to the, co the congenital despair and anxiety that is an epidemic right now in our cultural moment. The church is the answer to human life and dignity. Remember, it was the church who started and invented hospitals and went into pagan urban centers and nursed their pagan brothers and sisters back to health, and some of them lost their lives. It was the church who cultivated the land. It was the church who built aqueducts. It was the church who used technology to educate the people. It was the church who elevated the status of women and children in the ancient world. It was the church who healed the sick. It was the church who loved the stranger. It was the church who served the poor. It was the church who toppled wicked empires. There's a funny meme going around. I think it's like guys are just pulling one over on everyone. But have you heard that every man thinks about the Roman Empire every single day? You know? I, I, I used to think about the Roman Empire almost every single day as a young man. It's weird. It's weird. It was the church, though, that Christianized, not, not in a colonial sense or framework, but Christianized through the love of Jesus the entire expanse of the Roman Empire. But now we're in our present moment. Everyone say our present moment. And the church is like in this steep decline. We'll call it like this, this, this nosedive. And what I want to do today is just two things. As we take a look at Revelation chapter 3, I want to talk about the source of our decline. And then out of Revelation 3, I want to offer a hope of spiritual renewal. How many of you think that the church needs spiritual renewal and vitality and power? About 80 of you. Okay. We'll move on. First, on decline. You see, our capacity for God, and I think many of us recognize this, is reduced when we give in to resentment, unforgiveness, a pattern of unconfessed sin, when we give in to a loss of spiritual hunger for God's presence, when we come to believe emotional scripts that were not loved, that our grandpappy said that we were dumb, and so we live by the limitations of that cursed consciousness, we then lose the presence of God. 
And when we give in to uh, unforgiveness and we give in to these patterns of sin, we then lose the personal, genuine, definitive, repeatable presence of God. And what I mean by repeatable presence of God, I mean that your Father in heaven so delights in you that he wants you to delight in him. And when he sees that you delight in him on a daily basis because he is intimately involved in every aspect of your life, he then gets joy. That we're not called to have one-off Christian experiences on a Sunday. God wants to repeat his love and his voice and his promises to you day by day, week by week, month by month, year by by year. Can I get an amen, church? But when we lose the personal, genuine, definitive, repeatable presence of God, we then give ourselves over to high performance and busyness. Uh, someone, we, we say this often, but there was one author who sar sarcastically said, if the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. And we all know we live in a hurry culture. We hurry, we hurry, we hurry. And because we hurry so much, we don't have any time with God. I remember hearing the preacher, one preacher um, talk about hurry culture. And I remember thinking, come on, man. I'm a contemplative. I am a philosopher. I'm deep. I don't have a problem with hurry. And then he gave a metric to evaluate whether you're in hurry or not. And he said, if you go to the grocery store and you try to find the fastest line or the shortest line, you are in a constant state of hurry. Or... If you like to drive and you come, up to, you come up to an intersection and you're looking for the shortest line, you are in a hurry. And so our culture is shaped and defined by this epidemic of hurrying through life. See, the problem with this is when we lose the presence of God, we have to find a God substitute. And so then we look for performance or we look through busyness or we try to distract ourselves, which leads to emptiness, exhaustion. And this is my greatest fear for me and the greatest fear for this church that I have is that we would live our lives from spiritual fatigue. Spiritual fatigue is rooted in this vague, restless sense of uneasiness. Some of us are so fatigued that it's impossible to love, that it's impossible to walk in the power of God. Downstream from all of this that I'm talking about is the source. And this is, I just want to, I, I want to focus about three hours on this today, okay? I want to make sure you're awake. Here's the source, guys. It's called dead orthodoxy. What does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that after, after collecting his thoughts and preaching the most beautiful sermon ever. He then says, if you hear my words and you do not do them, you are like a foolish person. James, the brother of Jesus, says something similar. He says, faith without works is what? Dead. He's dead. Everyone says, dead. <laughs> Thank you. So the problem we like to have fun in church, right? The problem with faith without works is you could have a correct belief about God, about reality, about who you are, about sin, even the details of superlapsarianism. You could even try to figure out how you could be a Christian and still be a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, which is impossible, right? You can have all the correct beliefs about everything. But faith without works is your heart 
and your lifestyle do not reflect it, reflect what you believe. So instead of being a merciful person, you're filled with anger. Instead of blessing the world, you curse it because you have not allowed the transformative work of Jesus any room in your life. And this is why at times the church can become hateful, filled with hypocrisy, becomes a cesspool of moral do-gooders who have no power or authority to do anything. Becoming what Jesus then warned, if a salt loses its flavor, it's worthless and must be thrown out. And some of you are thinking of other churches, maybe you're thinking of other people that maybe have offended you, and that's, I totally understand, but I'm not talking about any of those things. And I'm talking about the smugness and, and the hypocrisy and the inability to put the word into practice. I'm talking to you and I today. We all have this problem. When we significantly reduce the, pow the power and the rule of God in our lives by tolerating a faith that does not change our character, then we're left with, in the words of, of one author, the gospel of sin management, which we then avoid the most obvious sins simply by sheer willpower. So there are people in the church that they think they're really good because they're, well, I'm not an ax murderer. I didn't do the cocaine. And that's, I mean, it's just low-hanging fruit. I think most of us, through sheer willpower, we're not going to kill our neighbor. No? And yet we, we just live by this low-hanging fruit, and we just kind of have this smug, exploitative self-satisfaction. And yet God wants more from us. This artful management of sin leads not to the transformation of our lives. It, guys, it leads to deadness. Are you with me this morning? Their understanding of sin focuses, in the words of one author, upon behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower and ignore the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surface. So on the surface, those who've embraced the dead orthodoxy appear presentable. Like some of you, you came in with nice pleated pants. I like it. I like it a lot, okay? Some of you guys, you have a nice, like, oversized sweatshirt. I like it, right? You, you come in. You know how to sing the songs. You understand the liturgy of this particular church. You know when to raise your hands and when not to. You know when to say amen or not to or whatever, right? You come in and you have a presentable, presentable, kind of just good, good old uh, Christian person. But underneath, the flesh still reigns. This such good people may seem to be good Christians, leaving or leading respectable lives visibly advocating for the poor, and leading in the church, yet underneath lies not the presence of God. In the words of one author, but just a human engine that is corrupted by sheer willpower. What we need today, if we want to move into spiritual vitality and renewal, we need the Holy Spirit. And this is where we come to Revelation chapter 3 and our hope for renewal. The source of today that I want to focus on, the source of our decline in the church is the dead orthodoxy. The hope for renewal is found in Revelation chapter 3. So John writes this. Jesus speaks to John 50, 60 years after the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
John is still alive, so this is considered the apostolic period. The church at this point is in decline. So Jesus offers renewal to his church, which is steeped in complacency. In fact, the church of Laodicea is rebuked for its lukewarmness. Everyone say lukewarmness. As Jesus states in the starkest of terms, I prefer that you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. Three times he says, you're hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And then he says, you're lukewarm. And then Jesus says something so graphic. Some of the translations said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The best translation is, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Like when you put Brussels sprouts in your mouth, you should get rid of those things. Spew them forth from your mouth if. What? Okay. This is what Jesus does with dead orthodoxy. This is what he does with complacent Christianity when we're lukewarm. Now, many people that translate this or they interpret this hot, cold metaphor as God wants you hot and on fire for God. Read your Bible. Go for God. Or just become an atheist. Go to Vegas. Do bad things. No, I don't know why I'm talking like this this morning, right? Just do whatever you want. No, that's not what actually Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually, when he refers to hot and cold, he's referring to the topography of the Laodicean church. Laodicea was situated between two towns, Heropolis and there was another town. And both towns had springs. Heropolis, roughly five miles north of Laodicea, had, and they were famous, known throughout the world for their medicinal pools. In fact, it was hot water. And so what they did is they built aqueducts and they tried to pipe the water five miles to Laodicea. But by the time this hot medicinal water got to the town, it was tepid and lukewarm. To the southwest, you had another town where they had cold kind of alpine water and they tried to do the same thing. They built an aqueduct. They tried to pipe the water into Laodicea. They wanted refreshing spring-like water. But by the time it got to the city, it was tepid and lukewarm. What Jesus is saying is that my people do no, no longer have the capacity for spiritual healing or spiritual refreshing anymore. They are powerless, powerless to do anything. If you've ever felt disgusted with Christian behavior or churches or maybe even your own behavior, I just want to say something really quick here today. Jesus is more so. Some of you, are, you, you you're, you've been wounded and you've carried around that wound because of a trust that's been betrayed by someone who claimed to follow Jesus. I want to encourage you here today. Jesus is disgusted with a dead orthodoxy or a betrayal of trust or a, a, a Christian faith that does not put into practice the love of God. If you feel disgusted with this, Jesus is also disgusted with this because the church we find in the, throughout the letters of the New Testament is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And this is why, this is why it's so important that we can no longer toler tolerate and must make a decision to no longer accommodate a faith that isn't put into practice. We must reject it. 
North American, it's interesting, the North American setting or the mindset, we'll call it mindset, is trained to believe that they are capable of reading the Bible or coming to church on Sunday without any sort of spiritual transformation. We think it's okay just to contemplate without putting into practice the lived reality of God's presence and spirit and word in our life. So the key to this, am I being too dramatic this morning? The key, the key to interfering the dynamics of decline and moving into the life of the kingdom where there is spiritual vitality and life, Jesus tells us, as he told the Laodicean church, it's repent. Repent is not like saying sorry. Repent is not changing yourself. Repent is not coming to the altar, getting religion, um, crying your face off, like no longer like chewing tobacco or whatever that might be, right? We have all different kind of weird typecasts for repentance. Repentance is just simply seeing differently. Repentance, as we mention often, is to go beyond the mind that you have. Repentance is seeing life, I love this, as God sees it, which presupposes that the way we see the world is wrong and that we have been building an entire life around a faulty assumption or idea or longing and desire, and it's leading us into the paths of ruination and destruction. Repentance is not like God wants to come and destroy you. Repentance is God saying, hey, I want you to see the beauty and the values of the kingdom of God, that I am the source of life and life more abundantly for you, and that mindset that you have built your entire narrative and story is leading you away from life and hope and power and authority and purpose and fulfillment. As one author said, repentance is the radical recognition of God. Repentance is changing our deepest values and commitments and assumptions about life, about the stars, about mountain ranges, about God, about sex, about marriage, about relationships, about money, and realigning them with the kingdom of God. And as this happens, guess what? Guess what? Your lifestyle and character begins to change. Repentance is is not perfect. Repentance is simply changing your assumptions, lining them up with the kingdom of God and the priorities of Jesus. And by grace and patience, and a lot of times imperfectly, you move towards the center of God's will for your life. Okay, so I'm gonna say something pretty hard. We don't talk like this in church a lot anymore. But if there's no observable change over time and space, time and space, week, years, years, and years, then true repentance has not happened. Chris, are you you saying that, man, I gotta be perfect? No, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about just working towards the priorities of the kingdom imperfectly, but by the power and the grace of God. If there is no change in your life over year after year after year. I'm gonna say something here just pastorally and I love you with all my heart. Love you with all my heart. There is no repentance in you. It is possible the dead orthodoxy has come to shape your spiritual life 
Jesus. You hear, you talk, you listen to podcast after podcast, preacher after preacher. You worship with Bethel. You worship with Hillsong. You worship with Maverick City. And if there's no change in your life, then over time, we must evaluate, are you receptive to the dynamics in life of the kingdom of God? Remember, repentance is not changing yourself. God changes you. Repentance is embracing, okay, God, this is the right way. The Hebrew word is shub. Everyone say shub. It is you were going this way. God was that way. You turn 180. Is this 180? Yep, I got it. Not 360. I used to say 360. Nope, that's not it. 180. Back to God. Back to life. Back to fulfillment. Back to the purposes of God. And see, here's the thing. Many people think that repentance is weakness. Right? Lord Byron said this. He was a romantic poet in the 19th century. He had a disdain for repentance. He talked about writhe and rebel against change and repentance because it is the weak who repent. But the opposite is true of biblical repentance. When we experience grace-filled, everyone say grace-filled. Grace-filled repentance, it is a sign of strength coming from feeling loved and secured by your Father in heaven. Repentance liberates us from the need for pretense, evasion, and deception. It sets us free from the need to defend and control what everyone thinks. And it enables genuine authenticity, vulnerability before God, and fresh intimacy. The key to go from a church in steep decline to a church filled with the power of God is repent. Open your life up. Become receptive to the values of the kingdom of God. Let the Holy Spirit come in and begin to transform the depths of your character and your person and your mindset. Let him challenge you. Let him correct you. Some of us, we're preaching a narcissistic gospel that says everyone's okay, but God's gonna make you feel better. That's not the good news. The good news is Jesus went around and said, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived. And just let me say this really quick. I think repentance is all about preparing yourself for the very real, definitive, repeatable presence of God. A couple nights ago, we had we had our worship community come over to our house and we had a lovely time. If you were a part of that, can you say amen? amen. Okay, did you guys have a good time? Yes. Five of you had a good time, okay. Um, we had a wonderful time, but we had to clean the house up in order for it to become functional, right? It wasn't a disaster, you know, but there were diapers, dirty diapers, you know, in places, and we had to clean things up. And we, I remember for, for two hours, my wife and I were just cleaning the house, getting ready, for our worship community to come over, right? You cannot function 
You cannot function. I mean, we have seven kids, so it's hard. But you cannot function in a mess. You need to have some order. You need to have some cleanliness in order to function within a home. This is a picture of what God is asking from the church. The call in this next season is a call to repentance. God is saying, I want to be with my people. And repentance is preparing your life and your heart for fresh spiritual vitality and life and power and purpose. I think every Christian, we go through hard times and we experience suffering and we learn things in a redemptive way through what we suffer. But I think as Christians, we should be the most purposeful people on the planet. That doesn't mean that everything's going to work out like we want it to work out. But if you're a follower of Jesus and your heart is receptive to the kingdom of God, come rain, sunshine, hell, or high water. If your heart is receptive to the life of the Holy Spirit, you're going to constantly be filled with fresh purpose. So what's the goal of repentance? What is it? Is repentance like Jesus coming to us with, with this scathing denunciation and say, okay, you guys just get your act together and then I'm going to go to heaven and we'll wait for 80 years and see if you can make it, you know? People have a weird idea of, of repentance. Some people think, okay, I repent and then there's nothing else that I have to do, right? Repentance has nothing to do with that. Repentance leads us to three thoughts that I have for you. Number one, love. Number two, friendship. Number three, a meal. I'm going to read Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Jesus says this to the church. Thus, or those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20, one of the most famous, beautiful, haunting passages in the Bible. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. One, on love. The call to repentance for this church wallowing in this smug complacency is a call based on love. The scathing denunciation, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, is not a word of absolute condemnation. It is a word of redemption. Jesus, when speaking to his people, is much like a father speaking to his kids. I, I, I inherited this. It's called the wild stare from my father. So when my 7,000 children do something wrong, which is every day, all day long, it's exhausting, guys. Pray for me. When they do something wrong, I want them to know the disappointment, the frustration of trying to break someone's clavicle, okay? All right? <laughs> My kids are crazy, okay? And so I give them the stare, right? I'm not going to give you the stare. It's really intimidating. I'm a pretty intimidating guy. You know, I just don't want you to, you know, lead the church because I'm just so tall and handsome and everything. Hey, what, what am I even talking about? Okay, let's move on. <laughs> But I give them the look, and it's the look that, that they never want to see. But they never question, when I give them the look, they never question my love for them. Now, most of you don't have a relationship with my kids, and if you gave them the same look, 
they would perceive that to be what? Judgment. And I think this is what happens when we misunderstand repentance. And words like, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And because maybe we've, we've had in bad relationships with authority figures who were abusive, and they called us into an act of repentance or whatever. If we're not careful, we can take some of our experiences and project that onto God. Or maybe we take some of our misunderstandings of Scripture, and we're like, well, God came and corrected me or challenged me or called me to repentance as an act of unloving, graceless religion. But in fact, when Jesus comes and says, I will vomit you out of my mouth and strongly, strongly condemns the church at Laodicea, it is an act of the father coming to his kids and saying, guys, I love you, but I can no longer tolerate a tepid, lukewarm, powerless Christianity any longer. Two, friendship. How many of you like friends? Eight of you, okay. Are we getting too heavy here? Okay. Friendship, friendship. Gregory in the fourth century said this, uh, it is time for you, noble friend, to be known by God and to become his friend. This is a prophetic moment. I feel like this is what the Holy Spirit is speaking to many of us here today. God wants you to know him as friend. Because many of us, we know God in the abstract, ethereal way. We know God in the emotion of a Sunday morning experience. But we don't know God in the practical, daily rhythms of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I think we're at a moment, and the, and, and the Holy Spirit is coming to the church and saying, I want you, and this is the call of repentance, and the goal of that is the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to have friendship with you. Friendship is not deep friendships. We all know this is not detached. It's not transactional. I remember one of my closest friends, we would golf all the time and we would talk about life. We would talk about culture. We would talk about church. We would talk about marriage. We would talk about relationships. We would talk about philosophy. He would sometimes finish my thoughts and sometimes I would finish his thoughts. I could be exactly who I was without any sort of judgment from him and vice versa. That is what friendship is. And yet what Jesus is offering his people is something infinitely more. That if we can experience that on a human level, how much more can we experience that with the Holy Spirit? A deep, conversational, repeatable, life-giving, non-retaliatory or condemning relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's life-giving. Friendship is what Jesus is offering the church. And finally, he's offering a meal. You know what I love about the Bible? Is that most of some of the powerful redemptive works are done around a meal. I used to go from Genesis to Revelation. It's like mealtime, mealtime, mealtime. We have restoration, we got healing, we got a miracle. Like we even go to the New Testament, we see Jesus just throwing parties and meals. Remember, Jesus around a meal is forgiving prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus in John 21 is healing and restoring and forgiving Peter of his betrayal around fish and chips. And can I get an amen to that? Fish and chips. Amen. We're done. I love you. Meal. Jesus is offering love. 
a deep abiding friendship and a meal to his people. This, this pre-sages, pre, uh, um, a time in the future of the Messianic banquet, the meal is powerful. It's a meal beyond meals, but we know what happens when we're with friends around a meal, where there's sustenance, there's strength, there's joy, there's delight. But in the ancient world, when you ate with someone, please hear me, it was a symbol of identity and welcome and partnership. The reason why the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, you're hanging around the wrong people because they understood the implications of the symbology of table fellowship. Who you ate with meant that you welcomed them, that you identified with them. And Jesus is saying the same thing to a church that is smug, to a church living in dead orthodoxy, to a church in decline, a church that Jesus wants to vomit out of his mouth. He's saying, guys, I want you to know my heart. I want friendship with you and I want a meal with you. I wanna bring healing and restoration and life and fresh purpose and fresh clarity and new vitality and new hope to you. So in conclusion, Mark Twain once said this, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And I want to say the same thing about the church today. I want to say the same, I want to declare it. Can I, can I declare this? I want to declare about the sociological and cultural rumors that the church is dead, I want to say is wrong. Instead of continued decline, guys, I believe this from the bottom of my heart. I'm sweating bad because I feel this today. But instead of the continued decline of scandal and hurt and woundedness that some of us have experienced here today, I believe God is offering the church in the West the possibility of renewal and new life to his people. I'm declaring that God's coming back to his people to forgive and to give fresh hope and to renew life, to give us authority and power. Guys, what if we just as a church open up our lives to the receptivity of the kingdom of God today? What would, what would the church, this church look like in five years? What if we just said yes? to God and no to dead orthodoxy? What if we said no to the toleration of this low level faith? What if we said no just to sheer willpower? Well, I'm not an ax murderer, must be good. What if we said no to the abstract and we said yes to the deep transformative power of the Holy Spirit that changes our character, that sets us free from addiction, that makes us whole, that renews our minds, that empowers us to become who God has called us to be. This is my passion. I want to see the church open up to Jesus. Jesus is knocking on the door, folks. He said, let me in, let me in, let me in. Guys, you know what, the most, you gotta hear me, you gotta hear me. Programs are wonderful, but they do not change the human heart. You know what sets us apart? It's the presence of God. 
If we don't have the presence of God, it doesn't matter how articulate I am, it doesn't matter if we have the best worship set ever in human history, if we don't have God's presence, let's just pack up and go home. Are you hearing me? We need more presence than programs. Why? Well, every time you see Jesus go into a room, someone gets changed. Come on. The real, definitive, practical, powerful presence of God changes you. If you're receptive, if you have an open heart, if you're unwilling to accommodate a dead faith that does not put into practice the will of God, that's unwilling to allow the Holy Spirit come and bring new life through correction and change. I, I, I want to be a church that takes that door, unlocks it, opens it up, and say, Jesus, do what you want to do. Jesus, say what you want to say. I'm not afraid what people think. Jesus, come and let your presence fill our lives. Not just Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Come on, somebody. The church is at the center of the rule of God. God wants to manifest his rule, his loving sovereign rule over creation. And he wants to mediate that through us. Did I mention Boniface today? Second service? St. Boniface, I love him. Oh, you don't, did I say, you don't have to say that, yeah. Did I say, say it with me? Okay, St. Boniface, all right. Lived in the seventh century. I love him because he's an archetype of the church. He went to Germania and he chopped down a tree dedicated to the god Thor. It was a sacred haunt for pagan worship. He chopped it down took the wood, built a church, and transformed Germania. This is not, some people are like, oh, that's colonialism and that's Christian arrogance and we're not gonna be imperialistic and all that kind of stuff. I, I hear what you're saying, but put that to the side. This was about a self-giving, loving father who worked through a servant who went to a demonic power and chopped down a sacred totem pole, turned it into church, and transformed a nation by the saving, loving presence of God. That is our future. Not deadness, not lukewarmness, not dead orthodoxy, not tolerating these gaps in our life, right? Oh, because I didn't do the cocaine, I'm good. Our future is spiritual vitality. Our future is tens of thousands of people in the city giving their life to Jesus. Our future is tens of thousands of people baptized. Our future is tens and thousands of people committing their lives to the deep work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's our future, guys. Not just for this beautiful church, but for churches in this valley and churches in the West. Come on, somebody. But it requires that we become receptive as we heed the call to repentance. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
as your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed, you say, Chris, I, there's some unconfessed sin in my life. I wanna confess it. Or you might say there's some dead orthodoxy in my life and you just felt as, as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit was pointing things out. Or you felt the loving correction about something. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's a cycle of resentment that you're in. Maybe there's even an emotional script or mindset that you've been living from that is more cursed than blessed and you realize you can no longer live in from that or in that. And you hear the call of love today. You hear the call of friendship. You hear the call of Jesus wants to prepare a meal and bring life, fresh life and sustenance to you. And today you wanna to open up your heart. You want, I just feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, enough is enough. Out of love, he's saying, I want my people to come higher. I'm calling my people out of their complacency. I'm calling my people out of their dead orthodoxy. I'm calling my people out of low level of faith. And it is a call of love. Remember, as your eyes are closed, the most repeated Bible verse in the Bible, by the Bible, is Exodus 34. It's all about the character of God. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, your God is good. And his mercy, Psalm 145 tells us, is over all of his works. So today, please hear me, it's all mercy. It's all love. As God calls us out of our sin, out of our complacency and out of our dead orthodoxy. And you sense that today and you wanna to respond and you're like, Chris, I need you to pray for me. On the count of three, I'd just like you to stand. I want you to open up your heart. We're gonna, I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna sing a song and we're just gonna be led by the Holy Spirit this morning. But I, I sense the sweet presence of Jesus here. He's gonna set people free. He's gonna heal chronic diseases. He's going to renew minds. He's going to give you a new grace, new purpose, give you a fresh sense of clarity. But Father, I thank you So we open up our hearts. You would fill us today in Jesus' name. If this is something you want, on three, just go ahead and stand. One, two, three. All of those who are standing, could I just have you come up to the front? I want you to come up to the front. Jesus, Jesus. I'm gonna pray for you, but I want you to pray for me. I think this is a word for all of us here today. If you can scoot in, come over here. How many of you want a fresh fire in your life? I want that. Blaise Pascal, a famous mathematician, had an incredible encounter with Jesus. And he wove this little paper into his, like, I don't know, his coat jacket. And it said, the God of fire, the God not of philosophers or scientists, but the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And it was a telling moment or a telling script that pointed to his radical encounter with Jesus and his life was never, never the same. I believe today God is setting a fresh fire in our hearts and our minds much like that. So if you're up front, can you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm gonna pray God's presence over you. Lord, in this moment, we hear the call to repentance. 
It's not just a call to change ourselves. It's not just, I'm sorry. This is, we're re-seeing things. We're opening our hearts up to you. So Father, forgive us if there's any unconfessed sin. There's resentment, lust, pride, arrogance, complacency. But we thank you, Father, for, for your forgiveness, your healing work in our lives. I'm gonna give you about 20 seconds, just whatever you need to confess, just open up. You don't have to say it loud. You can whisper to the Holy Spirit. But in this moment, just bring in prayer and worship your confession. Thank you, Father. All right, can you take your hands if you're up here and just put it on your heart right now? Father, we just lay our hands on our heart. We just thank you for fresh fire. Lord, we thank you that you're moving us out of the flesh and into a new fresh faith and practice filled with new possibilities. I thank you for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit right now on every son and daughter in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.